Welcome to Mapping Healthy Minds, a podcast for people who want a better sense of mental health and how to achieve it. I'm your host and licensed marriage and family therapist, Justin Lewis. We are currently working on a series about cross-cultural conversations. This series is being co-produced with my co-worker and good friend Jenny Linville, a licensed professional counselor who also works at Compass and has been a guest on this show multiple times. The idea uh, is for us to have a monthly episode spread out uh, throughout the weekly episodes in order to give this series and this conversation some extra length and not be all at one time. Part of our mental health, we have decided as professionals, is our awareness of how we function in the world, our ability to connect with people different than us, and to navigate through conflict. All of these things will be covered in our in this series that will feature not only black voices, but also white people's experiences as well. This series, you should know, is brought to you by Paducah Bank. Paducah Bank is an award-winning locally owned bank with branches in six locations in Paducah and Louisville. Paducah Bank received a five-star rating from Bayer Financial, which is the nation's premier bank rating firm. In June of 2020, Paducah Bank was notified that it had earned the highest rating that Bayer Financial can give away. The bank has earned this five-star rating for 44 consecutive quarters and is one of America's strongest banks. If you would like to be wowed from Paducah's premier banking institution, give them a call at 270-575-5700. This week's guest is Brian Clardy. Brian's episode is actually a two-parter. He had so much quality content um, in both historical and also how uh, that history plays out today that we decided to make his episode into two parts, and so what you're about to hear is the first part, And um, but before that, Jenny, you're in the room with me. Hello. Hey there. What uh, would you say are a couple of takeaways as someone who has heard and helped shape up this episode uh, for the audience today? Yeah, um, I think you already kind of addressed it even, just the idea of asking that question of how did we get here? Um, but then even asking the question of where are we? Mm -hmm. Um, I think when we gain background and we gain kind of a good foundation of where we are, um, and how we got here, we can also figure out where we want to get to and how to get there. Very true. So, uh, Brian does a great job of providing that historical perspective because of his background as an instructor. Uh, at Murray State, where he uh, teaches on history. So here is my episode with Brian. First thing um, is that history background. I'm going to open it up to you um, with this kind of broad question about the history of um, black being black in America. Uh, what some of the turning points are and uh, kind of what leads to those and what happens after the turning points. 
Well, first of all, we've got to understand that when we're talking about slavery and the transatlantic slave trade, it is not novel to what we would call the continental United States. Uh, the Spanish, the Portuguese, and the French were all complicit, and later the British were complicit in bringing slaves over to the New World uh, from the 16th, really the late 15th, the late 15th, no, the late 16th century going forward. Uh, the British kind of get in toward the tail end of that. And so when, we, when the colonies are started by the English in 1607 and so forth, the first group of slaves don't come over for another 12 years. First group of slaves come over in 1619 in Jamestown. And generally that's when we mark the beginning of the period of chattel slavery, even though technically they were brought over as indentured servants. Once that tobacco trade, once that farming trade becomes very lucrative, then we gradually transition over into uh, chattel slavery. And so from the 17th century until the 19th century, we have chattel slavery. Mm -hmm. uh, black men and women and children bought and sold on auction blocks, not really fully considered human, um, mm -hmm. working in different other menial capacities and some important capacities, I say, I say important ones, because they were the ones who built the buildings. They were the ones who built the bridges. Uh, they were the ones who built the roads. They mm -hmm. just weren't picking cotton. Cotton doesn't really become a factor until we get to the invention of the cotton gin mm. and the demand for American cotton at the beginning of the 19th century. So they were doing tobacco, indigo, rice, sugar, and so forth. But they were also the people who did the hard work of actually building the infrastructure for the country. Mm -hmm. Now, understand, what was, what was the justification for this? There were several of them several justifications for, for the institution of slavery. Uh, the first is quite obvious, the issue of race and this idea of whether or not the African was really considered fully human and equal to the European and the church, higher education and popular culture all could agree that the African was an inferior race. That was the, the, the assumption that they all worked under. And being of an inferior race, uh, they could be treated as less than equal. They could be treated any arbitrary kind of way. This was also supported by scripture and the church and this whole idea of a Hamitic curse. And so now we have a biblical rationale for why slavery uh, should exist. And then third is an economic rationale in the sense that you've got a dependable workforce. You've got a workforce not only that you can buy and sell, but you can also breed. And you're constantly bringing them in from Africa. You're constantly bringing them in from Africa and the Caribbean. And so you've got this dependable workforce that will work for absolutely nothing and which has some value on the market. So it was, it was financially lucrative, not just in the South because there was slavery in the North and in the South. Uh, banks benefited. Insurance companies benefited. From, from owning slaves, slave ship companies certainly made a, a huge killing off of this particular trade. So as I said to my students over the last several years, slavery was big business. Mm -hmm. Now that's, that's, that's the ugly part of it. Yeah. Where the hope comes in is that you have a group of folks in the colonies and later the United States who believe that slavery is an evil. 
And these folks are in the minority and they gradually become a vocal minority. These are the abolitionists uh, who were considered the fringe types. They were considered on the, on the margins of society. After all, slavery was a natural, the natural order of things. And here come these abolitionists challenging uh, the practice of chattel slavery. And eventually these abolitionists gain voice white abolitionists and free blacks. Not every black was a slave. You did have a community, especially in the urban areas of free blacks who also advocated uh, the uh, abolishment of, of chattel slavery. And you also had some violent resistance uh, to the institution of slavery. Going back to Nat Turner, Denmark Vesey and Gabriel Prosser, of course, everybody knows Nat Turner's because that one was perhaps one of the most quote unquote successful. And then you had the Stonewall Rebellion in the 18th century and so forth. So there was always this undercurrent that pushed against uh, the norm that slavery was, was, was the way to go, that slavery was the natural order of things. There was always this resistance to that. Which bring up, brings us into the 19th century and the sectional divisions between North and South. And I think this is extremely important. This distinction is important. Many people in the North, you had some who were abolitionists, most of them were anti-slavery. And as the country begins to take these territories through war and through diplomacy, uh, the question then becomes, should slavery be allowed to expand? into the West. And so you had the anti-slavery group who wanted to keep slavery contained in the South. They were not abolitionists by mm -hmm. any stretch. Now in the South, they didn't care if it was anti-slavery or abolitionists. They saw both groups as a threat to their particular way of life. And so really from the Missouri Compromise to 1848, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, which ends the uh, Mexican War, the question then begins, and it's a political one, it's an economic one, should slavery be allowed to expand into uh, the West, into the Western mm -hmm. Hemisphere? Um, of course, this leads to an eventual breakdown in the political and social order. You have the secession crisis in 1860, and of course the war, the Civil War, uh, 1861, 1865. Um, and it, it was about slavery. Make no mistake, don't let the lost cause folks fool you. The cause of the Civil War at the end of the day was slavery. Mm -hmm. Now, you could argue states' rights in the sense that uh, John C. Calhoun, way back in the 1830s, had articulated this view of states' rights with regard to interposition and nullification with the Fort Hill Address and so forth and the nullification crisis itself. But it was states' rights for what? The, the right to own, enslave, and exploit black people. Mm -hmm. Period. Full stop. Of course, the South loses the war. Uh, the slaves are freed by the 13th Amendment, initially by the Emancipation Proclamation. So slavery ends by 1865. The period of Reconstruction is a very important one because Reconstruction goes 1865, 66, up through 1877, and, and things are going great. Mm -hmm. Things are going great. There are laws in the books which protect the rights of the freedmen. There are policies in place to try to mainstream the freedmen mm -hmm. into the fabric of American life with the Freedmen's Bureau and so forth. You have African Americans who are owning businesses, excelling in the professions, excelling in politics. Uh, you have African American 
uh, state legislatures. You have an Af African-American U.S. senators in Blanche Kelso Bruce and Hiram Revels in Mississippi. You had members of the House of Representatives who are African-American, and African-Americans were an important part of the progressive movement within the South during Reconstruction. There was going to be some pushback with that, a lot of it, some of it violent, but I'd say the vast majority of it very political because you have the Redeemer governments that come back into power in the 1870s. Uh, you had the Klan that was started before then, the Klan declared a terrorist organization, and it's kind of snuffed out for a minute. It kind of goes away. It does come back later. And um, by 1877, with the Compromise of 1877, uh, we're back at square one again. Not necessarily slavery, but the color line is clearly drawn. The interesting thing about this, and this is the thing that really doesn't get talked about that much, is that we need to watch what the Supreme Court says during this period. Because what the court is doing, the court uh, takes on this legal doctrine called uh, dual federalism, which says the states do their thing, the federal government does their thing. But the court does something else that's very cynical. They take the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause, which was meant to protect the rights of the freedmen. Well, they use that to protect the rights of big business. And so now you start to, start to see all these crazy Supreme Court decisions from the Slaughterhouse cases to Plessy versus Ferguson, which pretty much ensconces the color line into law. And so now you have de jure segregation in the United States. And this certainly continues, this line of thinking of the court continues all the way up through Brown versus the Board of Education. And of course, we have the Civil Rights Movement of the 1960s, which um, uh, outlawed on paper uh, Jim Crow segregation and um, disenfranchisement, which was another part of the Reconstruction piece. Mm -hmm. So as a general rule, let's just sort of the, the broad sketches of what has happened within the African-American experience. And it has come to really define what it is to be an American. And it has become an essential part of understanding um, some of the core uh, important points of African-American history and American history as a rule. Well, you have... Um shown me that your uh, history is going to be even more valuable than I even had thought. <laughs> that's um, how I make my daily bread. That's <laughs> true. Serious. I should have known better. That's how, that's how I make my living. So, you know, and I just published a piece once coming out in the next few weeks on lynching. I did a historiographical commentary on lynching that's coming out in the Journal of the Jackson Purchase Historical Society. So, you know, there's so many different layers uh, of this discussion. Mm -hmm. We could we could talk for hours on this, and I know that you're 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 limited on time as am I. But yeah, there's so many different layers. This I, I look at American history as a big giant onion. Mm -hmm. That once you peel back one layer, there's another one to peel back, and there's several different layers to this particular story. So let's. Um... And like you said, there's so many layers that we could go from, and I don't want to make any point any, any more important than another. But let's just say um, civil rights okay. movement until mm -hmm. present day. Let's kind of set up shop as much as we can there, while knowing this is all informed by a lot of the history that comes before that. I'm not saying that well, it all started here, but... 
just for the sake of time, maybe we could do it that way? Well, there's several different things that feed into the civil rights movement. For one, you always had a nascent civil rights movement within the African-American community, whether it's the teachings and the ideas of W.E.B. Du Bois or of Booker T. Washington. You know, African-Americans did not just sit pat and do nothing. There was a very sure. healthy debate within the African-American community. How best do we deal with this? Of course, Booker T. Washington is viewed as an accommodationist mm -hmm. uh, in the sense that he advocated self-help. He advocated uh, not pushing for voting rights, not pushing for civil rights right mm -hmm. away. But the interesting thing about Washington is that Washington supports a lot of these particular organizations. I would dare say that of the two between Du Bois and Washington, Washington was far more pragmatic, at, whereas uh, Du Bois was more idealistic. Du Bois was one of those folks who really wanted to push to overturn Plessy and to restore African-American voting rights and civil rights and inclusion into American society. So there had always been that undercurrent there. Sure. There's always been that undercurrent within the African-American church. But understand this, too, from the 30s going forward, the nature of the federal judiciary is changing. Mm -hmm. The nature of the federal courts is changing with Roosevelt appointing as many progressive judges uh, to the court, to the lower courts, and to the Supreme Court. And they're getting away from this laissez-faire capitalist motif. They're getting away from the state's rights type motif. And we begin to start to see some rulings which gradually chip away at, uh, uh, at segregation, such as uh, Shelley versus Kramer, which was a 1948 decision, which outlawed restricted covenants in housing, which blatantly discriminated against African-Americans. And then we began to see uh, rulings coming out, definitely 1954, the Brown versus Board of Education decision, certainly rulings that come out uh, that strike down segregation in public accommodations in interstate commerce on buses and so forth. And so we began to see a gradual chipping away at this. Mm -hmm. In the 1950s, however, the momentum greatly picks up. The lynching of Emmett Till is the turning point. Yeah. Because we had, you know, we'd all seen the photographs, we'd all heard the stories. Right. But this is in the period after World War II. This is in the period after the Nazi Holocaust. We began to see the horror of lynching really in a very graphic way with Emmett Till. Mm -hmm. And when those pictures, when Mamie Till decided to allow her son to have an open casket funeral, mm -hmm. and the world saw how badly. Emmett Till had been treated and the way that he had been killed. This sends shockwaves throughout the world, not just in the black community, but the whole world is shocked by this. Yeah. This is one of the things that's going to motivate Rosa Parks. This is going to be one of, one of the things that motivates the civil rights movement in the South because now, you know, it's, it's fairly obvious that segregation and that Jim Crow is a very antiquated and brutal system. Mm -hmm. So now we, we have a situation where you have Martin Luther King and other civil rights leaders who now want to push for an end to segregation and end to disenfranchisement through legislation, uh, the tactics of the civil rights movement aimed at bringing attention uh, to Jim Crow segregation and allowing the country to see the brutality of, of segregation and bringing pressure upon Congress and, of course, President Eisenhower, President Kennedy, and President Johnson 
to bring about those legislative changes. And so this is why Bloody Sunday is so important. This is why Birmingham is so important. Because what it does is that you, you see pictures around the world. Um, you see pictures around the world of dogs being sicked on nonviolent protesters. Mm-hmm. Kettle prods being used on nonviolent protesters. Police clubbing nonviolent protesters. And this isn't a period where we said that we were not going to allow the state to have those type of violent excesses again. Remember, this is not too long after the discovery of the Nazi Holocaust. Mm-hmm. This is in the shadow of the Cold War, and we're, we're really critical of the Soviets for their human rights abuses, and we're critical of South Africa for their human rights abuses, but we've got them going on in our own front yard. Mm-hmm. And therein lies the contradiction, and therein lies the problem. And so this is this is where now the civil rights movement gains a lot of momentum now on the flip side of that also you have um african americans who wholeheartedly reject nonviolence this is where you have groups like the nation of islam led by elijah muhammad which was a black separatist organization and clearly one of his more uh celebrated preachers malcolm x Mm -hmm. advocating for armed struggle uh self-defense black separatism and so forth. Malcolm mm-hmm. is very influential with a group of young African Americans, especially after his death, the publication of the autobiography of Malcolm X. This is where now you begin to see the seed pod of the black power movement start to be started in the, in the mid-1960s, and it definitely goes full circle when the black power movement takes over the uh, what's called SNCC, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Well, they drop the nonviolence very quickly. <laughs> it becomes the Student right. National Coordinating Committee, and then where you have the Black Panthers and so forth, which uh, advocate uh, self-defense and a patent rejection of the nonviolent motif. And so we see that undercurrent also occurring from the '60s, going through the early '70s, and of course, mm-hmm. the Black Power movement basically found itself neutralized by J. Edgar Hoover and the uh, counterintelligence program that he put in place. So that, 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 that the whole history of what we see with regard to resistance to segregation and Jim Crow, as I said, has many different layers. And Dr. King's import contribution was clearly important, no, no doubt about that, but there were also others who fed into the tributary of that particular movement. Yeah, I, uh, I did a little bit of uh, reading before our interview because I was like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a, a little bit. And then now as you talk, I realize that the amount of reading I've done is like a drop in the ocean. <laughs> Listen, you but can't I'm, read everything. Nobody can read everything. Nobody expects people just to right. just sit around just reading civil rights books all the time. But you're, <laughs> you're on the hunt. You're yeah. on the hunt, and that's what's more important. Right. Because most, most folks just aren't there yet. And so some of the things you said were things that I had learned that I did not really know or hadn't remembered before that were really interesting as different philosophies. Because mm-hmm. to, me, to me, it was always like, okay, we have like civil rights movement and everyone in the African-American community is like single-minded on how to progress Mm-mm. blacks in you know, forward as far as reconstruction until even up until like some people, uh, leaders, uh, as much into the eighties and nineties. And, um, they were, I'm reading a book right now where they talked about Booker T Washington and sure. Yes. W. B. Du Bois and 
mm-hmm. how Booker T, like you said, uh, was more in the conservative. Uh, learning yeah. Conservative yeah. black and more yeah. liberal black even, but more idealistic, uh, like, like you said. And so maybe it'd be interesting to talk about how that strand of thought, and I've, Malcolm X was another one that I had no idea was initially kind of in the more conservative, I think you used the word self-help. Uh, uh, so he, he was, well, you can, you can actually go all the way back to Marcus Garvey yeah. and this idea of black separatism and black self-help. Right. Uh, this idea that somehow African-Americans, if they're really going to have any semblance of equality, needed to break away from white society and have their own businesses, their own yeah. universities, their own institutions, and so forth, and to go all the way back to uh, close ties with the African continent, this whole notion of Pan-Africanism. This is the one thing that the du- both Du Bois and, interestingly, uh, Marcus Garvey, who loathed each other, uh, really latched on to this idea of going back to Africa, not necessarily physically, even though there was more Garvey than anybody, and uh-huh. Du Bois actually did it. But um, but this these, these ties going back to Africa and relying less on the white power structure in right. order to be progressive. And so, that strand has always been there too. Um, but where we're talking about groups like the Panthers and the nation, there's a self-help element to that, but there's also a collective self-defense element of that where they say, you know, you hit me, I'm not going to pray for you. I'm going to blow your brains out. Right. Uh, Oh, you, 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 you shove me. I'm going to shove you back. Sure. Whereas King definitely rejected the approach, but certainly H. Rap Brown didn't. And neither did Stokely Carmichael. Yeah. And neither did Huey P. Newton and Bobby Seale. So you, you, you had that confluence as well. Okay. So um, present day, are there, would there be multiple strains um, in the yes. same way that there were back then? Because I, I think yes. that would be something that many people wouldn't realize. It, it seems more like a unified, like this is the way forward. Um, for equality, whereas maybe it's, it's not as much. And, and part of this book that I'm reading, it was published, uh, it, was prob- it was published, or the, it's a book of um, kind of essays that mm-hmm. uh, were written, this author who he published in the Atlantic um, mm. publication. And he, mm-hmm. he has a collection of essays, and his last name is Coates, I think. I don't know if you're familiar. Oh, Tanahasi Coates, yes. Right, yeah. Oh, uh, he's, he's good. I like yeah. him. Okay, so I've been reading some of his stuff, and um, and so early on in the book, he talks about some of the names that were mentioned: W. B. Du Bois and Booker T. Washington. And I learned about the multiple strains, and then he goes on to even talk like about Michelle Alexander too. When you get a chance to, okay, the new Jim Crow, but Michelle Alexander, she's really good as well. And so he, okay, I'll I'll keep that in mind, and. Uh, and we'll get some of these resources put into the show notes as well. So the audience Absolutely, can, can, yes. can see that. Mm-hmm. And he goes forward even into like um, Bill Cosby back whenever he was an influencer before he had his fall. Uh, we will we'll not address the fall. We'll just address the fact that he was such a presence in the black community. He was. And he was, he was. very much along the same lines um, as, you know, kind of like take care of your side of the fence, you know, this, the whole self-help part, the kind of don't wait, don't wait around for the white liberal ideas to take hold, but 
do what you need to do. I mean, is that a fair representation? That's of, a fair representation, but where Cosby alienated a lot of people with, yes, the, yes. with the pound cake speech yeah, is that right. it came across as very condescending. Yeah. And it came across as this very self-important, rich black man talking down to young, poor black people. That's how it came across to a lot of folks. And Michael Eric Dyson, of course, writes uh, very extensively about that. He wrote a book about that, actually. Now, the town cake speech, yes. I just happened to know about because I read this, but do you, do you mind to like just kind of briefly okay. say what, what that is? Just to, just you don't have to go into detail, just enough so people know exactly yeah, how that could sure. be alienating. You got to understand, first of all, the Bill Cosby, yes, he's an, he was an academic, he's an academic, but he's also a comedian. Right. And so uh, a lot of the things that he's going to say, he's going to couch it within that raw comedy. Right. He was speaking to the Rainbow Coalition, and he was talking about, um, you know, he basically said that some African Americans had not kept their end of the deal. Mm. That with civil rights movement, integration, and so forth, that there were folks that were just not taking advantage of those opportunities and in fact were being a drain on resources and being an embarrassment to the African-American community. And he talked about the way uh, that African-Americans spoke. He was very critical of that. He said mm -hmm. they're not even speaking decent English. Mm -hmm. uh, their parenting skills are, are much to be desired. Mm -hmm. And they're killing each other over something as simple as a piece of pound cake. Yeah being shot in the back of the head for a piece of pound cake. Now, that was hyperbole, no doubt, no doubt it was. But it was trying to illustrate a point about some of the dysfunction within many strains of urban uh, black America. Now, the statistics insofar as black on black crime, those speak for themselves. The poverty issue speaks for itself. Bad schools, broken schools, uh, impoverished neighborhoods, that's par for the larger course. We know this. Mm -hmm. And of course, some work needs to be done. But what Cosby does, and, and this is something Dyson talks about uh, quite a bit, it seems as though Cosby is blaming the victim. Mm -hmm. And that Cosby is lifting up the victim as a helpless and hopeless caricature. And that's what turned a lot of people off of him. He's at least not, and this is just my, from my perspective of what was said, he's at least not saying there's multiple parts to play here. Like he's only right. focusing on, hey, if you didn't steal, you wouldn't be, you know, in trouble. Right. Or right. if you didn't name your kids this, then they wouldn't be disrespected. Or I think he talked about even the naming and the way that, you know, all these. Yes, things. you can't get a job <laughs> with certain speaking skills and having these exotic sounding African right. names, which of course, you know, we see a lot of that in the late sixties and early seventies, uh, different like Jamal and Daquan and Tanisha. We see a lot of the naming of children start to occur around that particular period from the uh, black pride movement of the early late sixties and early seventies. Cause you know, I knew a lot of children who were, who were named some very interesting names during that period. And <laughs> right. not, not one of them had any roots to Africa, but, but that's another conversation. That's, yeah. That's one of the things that yeah. Yeah. But he doesn't, he, he doesn't really approach it from, like you said, there's yeah. any sort of, um, any sort of uh, victim kind of position there, which right. the way that, 
and the way that I see it is for any issue involved, no matter who it is, mm -hmm. there's, a, there's a piece of it that everybody has to own some responsibility. Of course. There's a piece of it to recognize that some have advantages in some areas yeah. and some don't. And that's another topic to, to kind of get to it in a minute, maybe. But, um, here, but here's the thing. If the schools are broken, the question is why? Mm -hmm. there, there, there's an economic motivation to this because if you have a situation where property values are down in a particular neighborhood, the question is why? If African-Americans in inner cities cannot get access to capital cash and credit, if they've been essentially redlined and their property values are low and taxes, property taxes are based on those low property values, well, then by definition, those schools are going to get poor funding. Because yeah. I lived in Chicago for seven years. I kind of sort of saw that, even though I lived in the Burbs, I lived in Blue Island. But mm -hmm. I did see instances where in some of these schools in these inner city African-American communities were going to be poorly funded because the tax base was jacked up. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you went out into the Burbs, you went out into Nutria, or you went into Oak Park, or you went into Oak Lawn, where the property values are high in mostly white communities, and uh, those, those schools are going to be very well funded, whereas the ones in the inner city are not. Mm -hmm. And the question becomes, is this by accident or is this conscious design? That's the one thing that Cosby really does not address in that. If mm -hmm. the schools are broken, if neighborhoods are broken, there's a reason for that. And it's not, the onus is not necessarily upon the people who live there, because the people who live there are just trying to survive. Right. This has been Mapping Healthy Minds, a podcast for people who want a better sense of mental health and how to achieve it. For more information on Mapping Healthy Minds, you can find us on Facebook or Instagram. More episodes are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or on MappingHealthyMinds.com. This series of cross-cultural conversations is produced by Jenny Linville and me, Justin Lewis, your host. Until next time, remember that your mental health is important and that uh, you should find a way to care for it. <laughs>